Good morning, everyone. I'm a Tom, Tom Hawksley. Usually we're sitting over there somewhere, somewhere and often we come embarrassingly a little bit late. Uh, but thank you so much, Mike, for giving us this opportunity. My wife, Mojde, and I, we've been working with Elam Ministries uh, now for about 25 years. Elam is based just down in Shackleford. So anytime you're feeling a little bit hungry or feel like a cup of coffee, please drop in and come and see us. Uh, Grenville, Grenville Road, uh, Shackleford. Uh, that's where we've been based uh, all these years. And uh, as I say, Mojde and I work with them. Mojde heads up all the work with women. Uh, and uh, I, I, at the beginning, was a bit like a headless chicken, but now I think uh, there's so much to do. But now I'm basically a Bible teacher and, and whatever comes uh, my way. Uh, Elam and St. Saviour's have good history, really uh, good history. All through these years, uh, this church has been very supportive of Elam's work. Important things have happened in this church. Uh, some of you might not know, but the man who is considered the father of Iran's modern church, Seth Yegnazar, the father of our fa founders, Sam Yegnazar, he had his funeral uh, service here. Uh, that was not a small event, and it speaks of the support that this church has uh, shown us over the years. And Mujde and I, this is our spiritual home. We used to go to the church, the Iranian church in London, but this is now our spiritual home. And we are also thankful and grateful for the ministry that we receive here. What a wonderful time of worship we've just had. We, we come here and we drink and we are grateful. Uh, it's been great being involved with Iran's church in our generation. 50 years ago, Muslims weren't coming to Christ in Iran. But now, thousands and thousands of Iranian Muslims are coming uh, to Jesus Christ. It's not hype. If you want to know more, there's a book at the back by Mark Bradley. It's uh, nine pounds. I've got still some one pound coins in my pocket, so please come and uh, buy one if you want to. There's also free literature there, our magazine, a leaflet, and Iran 30 a prayer guide if you, if you feel that the Lord is leading you to intercede uh, for Iran. Sometimes when we talk about what's happening in Iran, we think it's a little bit like the book of Acts. So we have this video to just give you a taste of what's happening in Iran these days. Praise God. He's alive. He's alive. And he's working in his own ways. I was at that baptism service. It was a wonderful time. And I know all those people. Uh, they're... they're, they're flawed, they have problems, they have issues, they're real people, uh, but God is at work. The brother who started saying, I've had two encounters with Jesus Christ, Behrang, I consider him a close uh, friend. Uh, it's not hype. Uh, he's alive and he's building his church in Iran. One of my great privileges over these last 25 years is to meet some fantastic people, as was in the film, and one of them is with us today, Ladan Nouri. Please give her a big round of applause. Ladan, uh, we have three-month intensive training courses in the region, and people come from the country, and then they go back to plant uh, churches, and Ladan came on one of them in 2008, and then with a prayer of blessing, she was sent back to Iran. So, Good say morning. Uh, I'm so happy to be with Sensei Beer Church. It's first the time, first huh? time for first me time to in be here. What do you Thank think? Thank you for having us. It's so beautiful. It's uh -huh. a dream for us in Iran to have this kind of building as a church. Yeah. 
Uh, so you, you went back in 2008, uh, and so obviously to get a church going, you've got to do some evangelism. Yes. So in our mind, we just have these mullahs, and they're just wanting to crush Christianity. So, so how did you go about the evangelism? Uh, we used to take uh, New Testament with us uh, everywhere we, uh, we were. In the, uh, you know, it was one of the things we, we always uh, had with ourselves. Yes, one of the, at least one of these. Uh, and praying before going out, praying to uh, asking God, God show us the right person to share gospel with. Because it's not easy to go to everyone and share. We don't know who they are and what is their background. But when God is showing us, we could uh, we could share, we could start our conversation and lead our conversation to what. Jesus did for us and who is Jesus and show uh, Farsi New Testament to them which is really uh, unbelievable for them because all the religious book for them is Arabic, other language not in Farsi and uh, usually they would love to have New Testament and uh, know more about Jesus and we could have more time in a street or park different places with them sharing more about Jesus. If they wanted to give their life to Jesus, we could help them and uh, have some, you know, like uh, discipleship, uh, you know, steps, first steps with them in streets, in the yeah, park. park yeah. And then eventually you'd invite them to one of your house yes, church meetings. Yes, when we make sure they are safe, they are not from government, we could have them in our house churches. So uh, can you just paint a little bit of a picture for the people? Mm -hmm. What actually happens in a house, house. church meeting? We, we hear house church, what actually yeah. happens? How many people there, what, what happens there? Yeah. Usually we had from like five, six uh, in our house churches to 15, sometimes 20, but when we have like more than 12, 15, we split to two different house churches because of, you know, because of our neighbors. And even sometimes one of us had to stand when we had meeting, one of us had to uh, stand uh, out of our house to see if anyone listening to us or watching us. And the rest of us, we were, uh, you know, at first we shared what happened, what, uh, what uh, you know, what testimonies they had or some blessing from word of God. And we worshiped together, but without any instrument, just singing with soft voice and, uh, and sharing from word of God together and again pray and worship God. And uh, usually end of our meeting, we had, you know, uh, enough New Testament for each of uh, us, at least seven New Testament for each person to take with them. We were praying together for all the New Testament we had there and taking with us to uh, go for, uh, you know, following week to share gospel with other people. And uh, fantastic. And, and so the... How many, how many churches were you, you leading? Uh, I was leading six house churches, but when I went to Iran and started to work with our network, we had 10 house churches, 
And uh, when, uh, after almost two years, we were 49 churches. 49 churches? Yes. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, how many people? Uh, I think we were around 950. Yeah. yeah. And this, was, this was back in 2010, yeah. 11. Yes. So it's many, yeah. yeah. And, and the government were really happy, huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. What happened? Yeah. Uh, it was 2000, uh, December 2010. Uh, we heard uh, they arrested some of our people. Uh, the supreme leader of Iran even talked about house churches in Iran and said uh, house churches is the enemy of Iran. And we, uh, we felt they are, uh, you know, persecution is coming. We were preparing for our Christmas celebration meeting, but we had to uh, cancel all, uh, all our meetings. And uh, in Boxing Day, they, I heard they arrested Boxing many. Day. Yes, Boxing Day. Yeah. Boxing Day. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. they arrested our uh, many of our people who were working uh, as a house leader. And the next day, they came and uh, they asked me to go and uh, go to Evin Prison. You had an invitation to Evin yes. Prison. Yes. <laughs> How did that feel? Yeah. It was very, very scary because, you know, first of all, I am, I am an ordinary person and I'm really, I'm not a brave person. And, uh, and I knew, I heard many things about every prison and other prison in Iran, what they are doing there uh, with people and how they torture people there. And I was so scared to go there, but I prayed with my mom and I had peace to go there and I went there. To so when you arrive in Avon, what, yeah. what happens? They put me in solitary confinement uh, and as they put rest of our team uh, in, uh, in solitary, different solitary confinement and it was a very small cell, eight to uh, Four, eight to six feet, uh, and nothing were there. Nothing, uh, you know. Just I had a very thin carpet uh, there, and a couple of blankets. No bed, no pillow, nothing. Else. Uh, there was a window, but they covered that window, and uh, it was so, you know, scary to just we could hear the voice around us, you know some people screaming and different things, shouting, uh, you know, uh, the guard and interrogator was shouting uh, and nothing were there. And the only contact, uh, human contact was with our interrogator. And did they treat you okay? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it was, uh, it was so hard to be there. And uh, you know, interrogate, interrogation time was so hard because they were uh, forcing us to, you know, to uh, to um, convert again to Islam and also give information about our teams and what we are doing about church member. It was so hard, and I was desperate to have something from God because there wasn't any good news and any news about our family, about, you know, the rest of our people there. Yeah. Did he turn up? And 
you know, it was interesting because I was just thinking if I had my Bible, I could, you know, I could had, I could have something from God here. And I asked my interrogator; they didn't give me. And God Himself, you know, with uh, verses, remind me, reminded me His faithfulness, and He encouraged me to stand there in that situation. Uh, and I could, once I, I went for interrogation and uh, I had pen in interrogation room and I could hide my pen because I was fully covered as an Islamic cover hijab and I could hide my pen and bring it to my cell, which is not, you know, easy and it's not, you know, they don't let you to have pen or pencil. I brought it to my cell and I started to write my uh, Bible verses. God reminded me on prison wall and prison wall became my Bible after a couple of weeks. Wow. Is there any particular verse you remember? Oh yes, many. I can remember all the verses, but one of the uh, you know verses God really taught me most important lesson through that to uh, me was Jeremiah 17 uh, verse 5 and 7 curse the man who trusts the man bless the man who trusts the Lord and it was it was my really lesson in my life yeah That's one of the lessons I, I, I remember you said a man had promised he'd get you out yes. and he yes yeah, but, uh, one of my interrogators uh, told me, I am king of this prison, and everything I say here, they have to obey me, and I will, I will send you from out of prison, I will release you from here in a couple of days, and I was waiting for him to come and release me, and he didn't come, and God started when I started to complain to God, God started to remind me uh, this verse, and I saw myself that time. I re uh, I put my hope and trust to this interrogator to come and release me, and uh, praise the Lord, He didn't come, and I was so, uh, you know, I was so sad. Why I didn't trust God? Why I didn't wait for God to come and release me? And I repent there, and after a couple of weeks. Yeah. So how many days were you? I was in uh, solitary confinement for 37 days. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 37 days. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. And then you came out, and yeah. now you're, you're, you're serving how many churches in Turkey? Uh, we have seven. about 40 churches in Turkey. Turkey. And yes, and I'm overseeing seven of these your churches. Your official title is supervisor, <laughs> Madam. Yes, supervisor of seven yeah. churches. And how many Christians? Uh, I think around 900, okay. 900 are attending these churches. Please pray for Lada. Yes, she has a lot on her plate right now. Yes. And what a story. Thank you yes. so much. Thank you. So I say one of the great privileges of my situation is meeting wonderful Christians like Ladan who have suffered, but keep uh, pressing on. Uh, the church in Iran is growing, and it's very important to understand that women are at the front line 
of this work. It's women who are becoming Christians. They find Jesus attractive. It's women who are being healed. It's women who are being restored. It's then women who are going into ministry. La Dame was leading those churches when she said we share the word of God. She was sharing the word of God. It was women are in the, really at the heart of this house church movement. Very, very involved. So um, we're going to see a very short film now, which will just, again, paint a picture for you about what life is like for a woman in Iran. Uh, then I will come and read a, a story from the Bible, which links to this. And then my wife, uh, Mojdeh, will share. She told me I wasn't allowed to give a sugary introduction. So being a good husband, I obey. But uh, she has trained or about 2,000 ladies have come through her conferences, about 250 a year. She's just come back from one. She's got three more or four more to go. And uh, she does a fantastic job. So let's watch this film. I'll read the lesson and then Mujde will come and share. Well, the reading is taken from St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, and I'm reading from verse 40. It's on page 1038 uh, in these Bibles. It's a story about a lady also in a very difficult situation. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Good morning. My name is Mojde, and it's a privilege to be sharing with you this morning. I have just come back on Thursday from leading a women conference. There were over 70 Iranian women there, and it was a roller coaster. There was so much pain, similar to what you heard uh, in the video, and so much bondage. Uh, 
but also so much joy and healing. When these women realize who they are in Christ, and this is the heart of our message, Women are not second-class citizens, as you saw in the film, but they are precious daughters of God. And more, they can become great ministers of the gospel, as you heard from Laudan. But how can this happen? When you hear a woman telling you that she was forced into prostitution from age uh, 13, when you hear a woman telling you that she had to go to work from age eight to get money to support her parents' drug addiction, when you hear a woman telling you that the nightmare that she's facing every day as her son is in prison for his faith and she doesn't know from day to day whether he has been executed or not, who can bring joy and healing to these women. I have seen over and over again, including just this past week, that Jesus brings hope, joy, healing, and deliverance. It happened to one lady, I call her Jale here, some years ago. When Jale first came to our conference, she was a uh, very, uh, my first impression of her was that she was a very beautiful and attractive woman. She was tall, uh, she, was, uh, um, she had gorgeous hair and beautiful smile. And I wanted to get to know her, but all she uh, asked me every time I saw her, she said, please pray that I have a dream of Jesus. I want to see him with my own eyes. And, you know, in the East, we give a lot of value to our spiritual encounters in dreams. So the first time I said, I will pray. The second time I said, I will. And the third time, I really got annoyed. Because, you know, she, was, she gave herself into worship and prayer. She was enjoying God's presence. And I, coming from Anglican background, I told this is good enough, you know, what else do you want? Uh, and so I made a plan for the next time she comes to me with the same request. And soon enough, she came. Uh, so I tried to give her uh, a very clever analogy. And I had caught her eyes looking at a wooden necklace that another woman was wearing. And so when she came to me, I said, do you like that necklace? She said, oh, it's really pretty. And I thought, good, she's nicely falling into the trap. Uh, and then I said, do you think this wooden necklace is uh, worth more than a diamond necklace? She said, no, of course, a diamond necklace is worth much more. And then I said, so you see, it's like God wants to reveal himself to you in his own precious way, in prayer, in worship, in ministering of God's word, and you're insisting that it should be in a dream. It is like he wants to give you a diamond necklace, and you just ha are having your eye on this wooden necklace. And she looked at me thoughtfully, and she said, Sister Moise, you keep the diamond necklace, just give me the wooden necklace. 
then she wouldn't get my profound analogy. She wouldn't understand my theology. And she just wanted to have a dream of Jesus. So one day I sat her down and I said, Jale, tell me your story. And she asked me, do you really want to hear it? Uh, and I put on one of my understanding, I'm ready for anything, Christian smiles, and said, I do. Uh, but I tell you, I was not at all ready to hear what she had to tell me. When she was 14, she had been raped as a punishment for joining a school protest. When she told the authorities, they whipped her for immorality. Then her father repeatedly sexually abused her, as did other relatives. She had to keep quiet until shame and frustrations took her to the streets where she ended up working as a prostitute. She could not remember the number of babies she aborted. Neither could she remember the number of electric shocks she received, as this is a punishment in Iran for getting immorality out of prostitutes. It was a hard story. I could not digest the suffering that this woman had gone through. And then she said, you see, Sister Mojdeh, I am a dirty girl. I mean, I was a dirty girl. I know that Jesus has forgiven me. I really do know that. But if he comes only to my dream, I really know that he does not consider me dirty anymore. I would know that he loves me, no matter what haunts me about my past. I will get back to Jala's story, but I want to go back to our reading from Gospel of Luke. And here we see Jesus coming to a town, and a pious, uh, influential man called Jairus, he comes to meet her, him. He is famous. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He's not a shy man, he's very expressive, and yet he's not proud in any way, a very good combination. And he falls at Jesus' feet and begs Jesus to come and do something for him. First, he asked him to come to his house, so obviously he had a house which was worthy of Jesus, and then to, ho uh, to heal his only daughter, a 12-year-old daughter who is about to die. What an important ma man. What a legitimate request. What an emergency situation. Don't you think so? So Jesus goes and the crowd go after him. And then what happens in the rush of the uh, moment? Women. When do we learn that a man has to do what a man has to do? She just barges in, and uh, I want to show you the contrast between these two. Here is a man and a woman. He's influential. She is nobody with no name. He's pious. She's unclean, according to the Jewish law, because of her bleeding. He is wealthy, he has a home, and she has lost 
all her money to the doctors. She's a poor woman. This man has a 12-year-old daughter, only daughter, who is ill. It's an urgent situation. It's a matter of life and death. This woman has got a chronic bleeding. If she's not healed that day, it's not such a big um, issue. He is bold, he's coming uh, at the feet of Jesus. She is shy and reserved. She comes hiding herself. She comes from the back of Jesus, back of the crowd, not to be noticed. No, come to my house. No formal request, no respect for Jesus and others as she's making the whole lot unclean by touching them. A kind of desperate shortcut like Jolly wanted. And we know the story. We know that she, is, she touches the hem of his garment and uh, she is instantly healed. Wonderful story, amazing healing, but time out. Let's go on. We have an urgent situation at hand, the healing of this poor little girl. But no, Jesus stops. He starts a conversation, and, and what a conversation. Who touched me? Of course, nobody expects Jesus to stop and waste any time. She certainly didn't need, didn't expect Jesus to stop. But Jesus does stop. And there is something in his voice. She's not sure what it is. Was it a rebuke? because she was unclean and she touched all these men? No, it can't be. Why then was I healed? Was it that I did it in hiding? Maybe. But how could I be as bold as Jairus? I'm a nobody. I'm a woman. And anyway, how could I stop him while he had such an urgent matter at hand? Is being healed from a chronic bleeding more important or a dying young girl coming back to life? My case would not stand a chance. She was well aware that the time for healing of this little girl was ticking away. In fact, you can imagine her guilt when this guy comes from Jairus' house and say to Jairus, don't bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter is dead. How tactful, by the way, was this man. Your daughter is dead. Uh, but why did Jesus stop? He had healed her from her horrible sickness. Wasn't that a big enough thing? Yes, but he wanted to do more. He wanted to meet her. He wanted to hear her story. In the midst of this critical situation, he pauses, he listens, as if he's not in a hurry, as if he has all the time for this nobody and clean woman, as if it's the time to take medical history or socio-economical history, as if it is worth this woman is worth all his attention, as if her story is important, that she lost all her money, 
as if she's an active hero of faith and not just a passive passerby. As if by doing so, he wants to restore her dignity. As if he wants to totally identify with her, my daughter. Jesus did the same for Jolly one night. She agreed to pray with me privately, so we started to pray. It was all very normal and ordinary, but then he came. You cannot put a price on the encounter that Jolly had with Jesus. Certainly it was worth beyond any diamonds. I was sitting, praying with her, and she got up, and she started this gentle, worshipful dance to the Lord. And then she started singing beautifully. This uneducated woman, she started singing beautifully, with beautiful words and beautiful melody to Jesus, both in Farsi and in uh, tongues. And she was having a conversation with the Lord. As for me, my job was to clear all the cables so that while she was dancing away, she would not trip over. And Jolly, like many other women we serve, was brutally abused. Jesus not only forgave her, but through that encounter, he restored her dignity. He gave her value beyond anything she could ever imagine. He identified with her, but no one who knew her story would ever want to identify with her. Later, she asked me, did you hear what he told me? No, I could only hear what, one end of the conversation. He said, my daughter, Jale, did you think I won't come to see you? I love you. And her face was beaming as she told me, Sister Mojdeh, I wished to see Jesus in my dream, but he came to me when I was fully awake. Jesus thinks that a nobody woman in the crowd is worth not just the healing, but the restoration of value. He can pose for you and for me. He is the same today for you and for me and for Jale and for many other women in Iran and everywhere. He calls an ex-prostitute my daughter. He meets her and he restores her dignity. I chose this story specifically because it happens some years ago. Because you might be wondering how Jale is doing after some years, she is doing well, very well. This was just the beginning of her story. She is not just a restored woman, but she came to our training, and now she is ministering to many Iranian and Afghan women, seeing Jesus at work in their lives as he worked in hers. And I want to end up with this request. You might be in some ways, you might in some ways see yourself in this, 
intertwined story of the women, woman with the bleeding and jealous story. You might think other people have more urgent situation than you and that there is no time for you. It might be that you have suffered some kind of abuse, man or woman, physical, mental, or emotional. You might feel ignored or neglected, and you might be carrying some scars like Jolly did. And this is my request. Come for prayer. Jesus sees you. He has time for you. You cannot go to Jesus and be unnoticed. God bless you. Thank you.